Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Michael Ying about his brand new book, really, really interesting um, new book, The Dysfunction of Ritual in Early Confucianism, and that was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. Now, this is a study of ritual in a particular text, and granted, it's a... Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Michael Ying about his brand new book, really, really interesting um, new book, The Dysfunction of Ritual in Early Confucianism, and that was published with Oxford University Press in 2012. Now, this is a study of ritual in a particular text, and granted, it's a particularly important text and one that we don't have a whole lot of monographic attention to, and that is a text called the Li Ji. It's a study in particular of failures or dysfunctions of ritual in the Li Ji, and not just failures of ritual, but kind of the self-consciousness about the possibility of a failed or dysfunctional ritual practice by the authors of this text. Ying is using this study, though, to contribute much more broadly to the field of ritual studies, and I think um, well beyond, potentially. And he does that by elaborating a number of concepts that we'll talk about later on um, in the interview, which include his notion of a tragic theory of ritual, um, his notion of ambiguity as a productive rhetorical device, and a notion of the kind of um, acknowledgement of the creative and therapeutic uses of anxiety about ritual practice and about the failures of ritual practice. It's a really interesting book. It's one that situates um, this text um, very explicitly and very productively within a larger theoretical literature, but that doesn't feel like um, you're being situated in uh, and being hit over the head with theoretical literature. It, it does it very fluidly and very elegantly. Um, and it was a really interesting time to talk with Michael about it. Um, so I hope you enjoy. Hi, Michael. Hi, Carla. We're here today to talk with Michael Ng about his book, brand new book, The Dysfunction of Ritual in Early Confucianism. Welcome, Michael, to New Books in East Asian Studies. And thank you so much for making the time to talk with me this morning. Thank you, Carla, for having me. Of course. So, Michael, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself? Uh, what brought you into the field of early China studies and ritual studies, and what brought you to this topic in particular? Yeah, well, it wasn't something that was premeditated, I suppose, from a young age. Um, Ng, of course, is a Chinese surname, um, and I grew up in Hawaii. My great-grandfather was from a southeastern part of China, um, and growing up in Hawaii, we never really knew much about our Chinese heritage. We were very much raised kind of on the Hawaiian side of things. Um, and so as an undergraduate, I started taking Chinese language classes, and and um, at one point took a course in classical uh, classical Chinese. And I remember that they taught us about this early Chinese dictionary called the Shu Wan Jiezi. And of course, if you are part Chinese, you're going to want to look up how they understood your surname in this early <laughs> Chinese context. Um, and so I looked up my surname, which is Wu in, in Mandarin, Kotian Wu. And it was explained a couple of different ways. It was explained as the top of somebody's head or it was explained as a person or a mouth calling up to Tian. And as an undergraduate, I started thinking, what's this idea of Tian in, in early China? And so I think for my senior thesis, I wrote about the concept of Tian in, in early China. Um, and that was kind of the start of my interest, at least in early Chinese uh, thought. Um, coincidentally, one of the first books that I purchased for my own intellectual benefit was uh, Robert Eno's The Confucian Creation of Heaven. And um, I remember it was the moment when I realized a couple of things. Um, one was that 
the idea that I had to write about the concept of Tian in early China had already been done by somebody much smarter than I in an entire book. And so it was the beginning, I think, of an intellectual journey of uh, trying to, to kind of discover new and interesting things that, that people haven't uh, spoken of. Um, it's been quite um, neat coming to Indiana University and now being a colleague with Bob um, as he approaches the uh, end of his career. Um, anyway, what happened after that is I applied to programs in graduate studies and was fortunate to get accepted into a um, master's program at the Divinity School at Harvard um, and then fortunate enough to remain there for a PhD program in the East Asian department. Um, so academia wasn't something I was always planning on doing and I, I see myself, I suppose, as kind of being fortunate uh, in terms of continuing to stumble along and find opportunities to think about things that, that fascinate me. Um, in thinking about the dissertation topic, this is my dissertation turned book, uh, there were a number of, of kind of factors that went into my decision to work on the project that I did. Um, one was reading texts that few other people have actually written about. And so the Li Ji, for instance, uh, it, despite its significance within kind of the early Confucian tradition, has received relatively little attention from contemporary scholars. And so um, this, the, the book that I just published is actually the first monograph in English about the Li Ji. Um, it had been translated back in the 1800s by James Legg, uh, but really not much attention otherwise had been given to it. And so in trying to look for a topic and having my interest in this early period, um, I was fascinated by a number of the chapters in the Li Ji, how exciting they seemed, um, certainly not all of it. It's a big text, and there are many portions that are less than interesting, I suppose. Uh, but there are a number of things that kind of captivated um, me about the, about the Li Ji. Um, one of them was the fact, especially coming from kind of a more religious studies background, uh, that the authors of these texts were quite concerned with their relationship, not only with people, but with the larger cosmos and the spirits within the cosmos. And this tended to be something that is also neglected as at least by people working working in uh, early Chinese thought. So that's something that kind of piqued my interest in the uh, in the beginning. But um, reading through the Li Ji happened to coincide with also um, reading through more contemporary uh, studies in, in ritual, and in particular, uh, a collected volume done by a, a scholar named Uta Huskin um, about ritual failure. And it was the kind of the combination of reading through the Li Ji and encountering this question of what happens when ritual when rituals fail um, that kind of coalesced. And I thought that the dissertation project would be interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them practical, simply because you know few people had studied the Li Ji, uh, and of course fewer people then would bring this question of kind of ritual failure to the text. Um, but others, I think, perhaps. Um, with kind of deeper questions that I even see myself kind of growing up with as a child, questions about the transformation of tradition, uh, whether traditions can continue to exist in more contemporary times. Some of those things that I think I see myself thinking of kind of early on uh, resurfacing in more particular ways in this project. Great. Now, you did mention that, and you mentioned in the book as well, that this began as a dissertation project. Um, so can you talk for us a little bit about that transformation from dissertation to book? Where was What was the process like for you? Were there any aspects of the process that were particularly notable um, or that surprised you? you or that represented particular challenges? Well, I think I was, I was fortunate to um, get a couple of, of fellowships toward the end of my uh, graduate studies that allowed me to work on the project in a more dedicated fashion than I otherwise would have. Um, and one of the things I think that resulted from that kind of more extended time uh, was a well-chosen organization for the project. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I didn't have to go back and um, reorganize kind of the, the project at a macro level. Uh, but I certainly did have to go back and rethink through a number of, of things uh, in the micro level um, 
it tighten down the arguments, develop a more clear through line, I think, uh, find a voice that extended beyond trying to speak to my particular dissertation committee um, and think about some of the larger implications. And so one of the things um, besides kind of uh, kind of streamlining all of the chapters, pulling out things that I didn't think were particularly strong arguments and trying to um, rework some of the logic internal to each of the chapters was to also add kind of a final chapter talking about where the kinds of, of ritual theories that are talked about in the Liji might go and the way that that might be brought into dialogue with uh, ritual studies. Um, so those seem to be, I think, kind of the, the major transformations that come to mind, at least. So would you say that you had the eventual book in mind when you were structuring and writing the dissertation? No, not at all. Um, as I think most dissertations go, um, I made the – I, of course – came up with a proposal for the dissertation and I went against what I think was very good advice offered by another graduate student. And that was to start with the chapter in your prospectus that you find the most interesting. Um, instead, what I did was to start from the beginning where it made sense for me to start. Um, and of course, I drastically uh, under or underestimated the amount of writing it would take to get through even what I proposed as my first chapter. Right. And so I think about 150 pages through what was just the first chapter, I decided this really wasn't going to work and I needed to kind of scrap or I needed to make a tough decision. And so I then started working in the area that I found the most interesting and then that eventually grew into the, uh, to the other project. So I have 150 pages of material um, that's just kind of sitting around and I don't think I'm even going to work that into a second project, but um, something you have to get through, I suppose, you know. Absolutely. So the book itself, if we sort of turn directly to it now, it looks at, as the title would indicate, the dysfunction of ritual in early Confucianism. And we can talk a little bit um, about those terms. And each one of those terms, I think, is important as you're using it in the book. And it does that by focusing on the ways that, as you've mentioned, the text of the Li Ji negotiates possibilities of ritual failure. And there are various ways that that manifests. And the ways that that negotiation plays out actually has really interesting implications, as you show us, not just for the way we understand the Li Ji or the way we understand early Confucianism, but also um, the way we understand ritual studies more generally. So since it's so crucial to the work, can you talk um, just a little bit about the Li Ji for our listeners? What is that text and why, um, why is it so important for the kind of work that you wanted to do here? Why, why choose that text in particular? Yeah, um, well, the uh, the Li Ji is, of course, one of the texts that was included in the early Confucian canon during the uh, Han Dynasty, so somewhere between the uh, 3rd century BCE and then the 3rd century CE. Um, and the text is comprised of 47 or 49 chapters, depending on how you count them, uh, purportedly written by the disciples of Confucius. Most of them, at least. And um, what you have within the text, then, is a kind of combination of authors um, that makes the text, even if taken at face value, uh, somewhat difficult to work with. And I think that's one of the reasons that people haven't quite worked with it. Um, it's also a fairly long text. So to give you a, a rough idea in comparing it with something like the Analects, it's about seven times as long as the Analects is. Um, and so, you know, you're you're dealing with um, something that takes a significant amount of time to kind of work through. Uh, scholars for a long time have thought that the Li Ji um, didn't actually come from Confucius's disciples. Right, That would have been several hundred years before this Han dynasty. Uh, scholars for a long time have thought that the text was the product of court debates during the Han dynasty, uh, ways to kind of legitimate Confucianism within that particular 
broader historical context. Um, and uh, at least with contemporary scholars, I would say that's been the dominant paradigm um, until the 1990s uh, when a group of texts were discovered in a grave that we can date um, previous to the Han Dynasty, which contain a couple of chapters or at least large portions of chapters from the Li Ji, uh, thereby at least for those chapters pushing the, uh, the dating back. So uh, what we have in the Liji is a text that um, has been handled by multiple authors over a long period of time, uh, multiple editors or redactors as well, um, and a text that's been roughly stable since probably the second century CE um, and commented on pretty consistently since that time period uh, by a number of people within the, uh, within the Confucian tradition. Um, it tends to be grouped with two other texts that emphasize ritual, one called the Zhou Li or the Rites of the Zhou, the Zhou Dynasty, and another called the Yi Li which is uh, a text that um, is more liturgical, uh, liturgical in the sense that it lays out the specific ways in which particular rituals are supposed to be performed. Um, the Li Ji is often kind of grouped with these two other texts on ritual. And um, one of the significant ways that the Li Ji differs from those two is that rather than being strictly a liturgical text, although there are certainly liturgical parts to it, um, it tends to be more concerned with emphasizing why people should be doing ritual. And so in this regard, at least if we take theory fairly broadly, it's a kind of theoretical text about why ritual is so important to the world, essentially, right, or to their world at least. Um, and it has uh, what can be called kind of companion chapters to this other text called the Ely. So where the Ely will talk about the ways in which uh, the wedding ceremony is supposed to be performed and who's supposed to stand where, uh, what people are supposed to wear, and what kind of actions they're supposed to perform, uh, the Liji instead will have a chapter about the significance of the wedding ceremony. And rather than getting into the specifics of the ceremony itself, it will talk about why people should be doing this wedding ceremony and its significance to society. Um, yeah, should I say more about the Liji? No, no, that's great, actually. Thank you. So you mentioned that um, this is a book that had multiple authors or multiple redactors over time. And one of the important things about the approach that you take here is to simultaneously respect that. So respect the fact that there are diverse perspectives in the Liji, but also look across those diverse perspectives for a, a kind of common or overlapping concern with a particular problem in the field of ritual, and that is what you call the dysfunction of ritual. So the general question explored in the book are how is how do the authors or redactors of the Liji recognize dysfunction in ritual? How do they explain it and how do they cope with it? So can you talk a little bit then about this notion of dysfunction of ritual? What does that mean in this context and why is it so important? Yeah, so um, one of the general ideas uh, within the text is that ritual is important because it orders the world. And uh, it orders the world in multiple senses. It can order human relationships. It can order our internal dispositions. It can order the way in which human beings are situated in a much larger world, in particular a world where there are spirits out there that may help or harm human beings. Um, and so the text is concerned with the ability of ritual to order certain kinds of things. Um, of course, it's also concerned with the ability of ritual to do a number of other things as well. Uh, but this tends to be the primary emphasis, this emphasis on order. Yet it also recognizes um, that this order isn't always realized. And so uh, there are a number of voices within the text that try to make sense of those kinds of situations. Uh, what happens when ritual doesn't order the world? And so it's kind of in this general sense that I talk about dysfunction, right? That order doesn't always occur. Um, and I, I think in chapter two, perhaps if we, when we get there, I can talk more specifically about the different kinds of dysfunctions within the text. Great. Thank you. Now, chapter one of the, or, well, I'll mention that before we move on that the first, uh, 
really the, the introductory chapter of the book for listeners who might not yet have had a chance to read it also lays out the kind of basic um, explanations or con- context within which to understand the other terms in the ch- in the um, title, early Confucianism, and the way that you're actually setting about producing what you call a creative hermeneutic um, of this text. And so I'll just uh, footnote that or note that so that that's all there. So if listeners, um, when they go to the book, want to see explanations of that, you, you do a really great job of that. Okay, so as we move into the body chapters, chapter one gives us a basic characterization of ritual or li. It takes us through the concepts of ritual in the Liji, and you show how different authors of the text understood this really central notion in actually really different ways. Um, So there are a couple of ways that ritual or li might function in this text that you disaggregate and explain and show us the importance of in this chapter. And these are, um, or two of the most important ones, are what you call expressive and impressive functions of ritual, one of them having to do with um, the way ritual will shape people, and the other having to do with the way rituals actually reflect the something that we might consider to be the inner qualities of people. So can you talk about that distinction in the context of this chapter? Yeah, and so um, he, chapter one is, of course, dealing with this this kind of question of ritual and, and the way that ritual is portrayed in the Liji. And one of the things, of course, that I emphasize is that um, bringing a kind of uh, ritual studies perspective to the text, um, we need to have a certain kind of interpretive elasticity with which we work with some of these terms. Um, and so while Li tends to be kind of the, the primary focus that I'm looking at, um, there are a number of other terms that are significant within the text as well. They can also kind of be seen operating uh, operating kind of as ritual, so to speak. Um, but in focusing more particularly on uh, the, the kind of the, the question of, of Li itself, um, one of the things that I um, discuss is what I call the, the pressive functions of ritual. And that is the text really works um, to describe the ways in, in which the performance of ritual is supposed to shape human disposition. It's oftentimes this idea of jirqing uh, or jirshan, that it's supposed to, again, order our internal dispositions uh, or order our bodies in certain ways. Um, and what this is doing is to kind of uh, train the, the human body or to train ourselves in a way that we become competent in uh, in moving our way through society or moving our way through the larger world. And so kind of this, this first um, pressive function of ritual, the idea that it's supposed to impress upon us certain ways of patterning um, that we then fit into kind of a larger picture of things uh, is one of the dominant themes within the text. Um, certainly one of the other themes, and the text itself isn't clear on the way that um, these two themes tie together all the times. Um, but, the, but the second theme is the idea that the performance of ritual is also about expressing ourselves in a certain way. And so it's about expressing the dispositions that we have within ourselves. And so one of the big metaphors um, that's used in the text is uh, the way that water flows and the way in which oftentimes we can control water. And so one of the chapters in the Li Ji is, is called the Fang Ji, um, the chapter that records things about dams or dikes or waterways. And um, the constant metaphor that's given throughout this chapter is that rituals serve as kinds of waterways for us to express our dispositions in certain directions. And so what's going to happen is that these rituals are going to help to shape our dispositions in certain ways by impressing upon us uh, a particular directionality of our dispositions, um, as well as allowing us to kind of express these dispositions um, that have been patterned within us. Okay. I'm sorry, did you want to go on? 
no, no, no. I, I feel like I'm, I'm not explaining myself as clearly as I as I had thought I would. But anyway, go ahead. No, you totally are. Actually, um, no, this is great. Um, and this is what um, what these early chapters are doing. Also, is they're going to give us the concepts and they're going to set up um, the kind of field or the frame within which we're going to go on and see the way you're developing very particular and very powerful arguments later in the book. So I think no, this is great. Okay, so after you kind of lay out what um, ritual means in this context and the plurality of things that it can mean and the plurality of kinds of functions that it can have in chapter one, in chapter two, you move to the notion of ritual failure or ritual dysfunction. And this is a notion that's going to be central to us for the rest of the book. You focus on um, particular kinds of particular ways that the types of ritual that you talked about in the first chapter can fail. Um, now, one of the things that comes up here is that we we are given um, an elaboration of a kind of concept that you uh, that you made clear in the first chapter, and that's the concept of again moving from this liquid flow metaphor to uh, understand a practitioner of ritual. The concept of a fluid or a fluent, rather, fluent ritual agent. So one of the issues that you discuss here in the context of potential ritual failures is the way that a fluent ritual agent opens the ritual script, as you put it, to allow for variations in ritual practice. So can you talk a little bit about these concepts? What is a fluent ritual agent, and how does a fluent ritual agent open a ritual script, and why is that important? Yeah, so the the script um, is, and I should probably also mention here that many of these terms are terms that that I'm bringing to the text, right? And so so we don't necessarily find them within the within the text itself, um, but I do think that there are large resonances, um, obviously, within text. Um, but the the script is the uh, essentially the rules by which the ritual is supposed to be performed, and sometimes these rules um, might be recorded in texts such as the Ely that we've mentioned earlier. Uh, sometimes they're expressed in the paradigmatic performances uh, of earlier figures such as the sages. Um, in any case, it seems that the performance of ritual is supposed to be done according to a script. Um, and as a kind of parenthetical, scholars have noted for quite some time that there are oftentimes competing scripts that, that are going on um, during this period. And even within the text of the uh, of the Ligi itself, um, nonetheless, it seems that within the performance of a ritual, um, that the context is guided by a script, the the way in which ritual is supposed to be done. Um, through the continued practice of uh, of rituals by following the scripts, ritual performers become competent, right? They become able to perform ritual uh, in a more spontaneous manner. Um, the text is uh, also aware that ritual scripts do not cover every single circumstance. And so ritual scripts that, for instance, uh, dictate the um, kinds of things that should be used in burial rituals um, are going to have to be changed. And one of the reasons they're going to have to be changed is because not everybody can afford to pay for specific kinds of coffins that a ritual script is going to call for. Um, and so the text uh, kind of develops the notion of a profound person, a person who's so well-versed in the ritual tradition that they're able to open the script in a certain sense, uh, that they're able to find new ways of altering the ritual script in, in oftentimes slight but significant ways uh, such that their ritual still attains a number of the aims that the performers want it to attain. Uh, so the idea here is that these profound people, through the practice of ritual and through becoming confident, uh, they reach a kind of stage of fluency such that they're able to uh, 
perform ritual, um, similar to the way that somebody who has become fluent in a language is able to speak without having to constantly think about the ways in which words hang together. Um, They've become fluent such that in some circumstances, they're able to even bend the rules of grammar, so to speak, um, so that they're able to, again, continue to attain some of the aims of language and the metaphor I'm using, uh, but some of the aims of ritual in a number of circumstances. And so what we have are these profound people who are considered uh, kind of fluent ritual agents that are able to take the script for a particular circumstance and determine that uh, the script can actually be changed, right? It uh, is an open script in the sense that rather than uh, using a particular kind of fish for a sacrifice, which the script happens to be written for people who live near the ocean, we're instead going to have to use a different fish for the sacrifice because we live up in the mountains and close to a number of rivers with different kinds of fish. Right. Now, you actually mentioned that this open script allows early Confucians to shift the authority um, in this kind of process, to shift ritual authority from the text itself onto themselves, but it also creates a kind of added burden on them. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so there um, there seems to be, uh, I think, um, one of the ways that contem- that a number of contemporary scholars have portrayed the Confucian tradition is a kind of shift, especially in toward the Han Dynasty, of a shift uh, to the texts themselves. Right, that it becomes essentially a very textual-based tradition. And one of the kind of at least implicit arguments that I'm trying to make here is that this idea of an open script um, is predicated on a profound person or a series of profound people that are necessary to change the script in changing circumstances. And so what we have here is um, the necessity uh, not simply of texts, although these texts may provide the scripts, the ways in which we're to perform ritual, but also the necessity of living, trained people who are able to make the texts or the scripts adapt adaptable to new circumstances. Um, the kind of uh, the burden that this puts on them then is uh, that they are essentially responsible to a large degree for the success or the failure of the ritual tradition. And so in, uh, in cases of failure, for instance, it very well may be uh, the case that they can be blamed for the fact of failure, right? Because they didn't change the script as uh, they should have, right? They're perhaps not as fluent as they should be. Great. Thank you. And one of the really interesting things about this is that um, situating this within a broader field of, I think, um, not just historical studies, but uh, studies of social sciences and humanities, I think this is part of a larger trend that we see if you look kind of transdisciplinarity to shift our attention from um, the written text, from discourse to practice, right? This is a mm-hmm. move to yeah. kind of emphasize the agency of, of practitioners. So I think um, it's of interest, I think, to a wide, um, in a wide conceptual field because of that. Okay, so now from this chapter, you move us to a series of chapters that look in detail at really what this notion of the dysfunction or the failure of ritual looks like in practice in these texts and what the different ways that that manifests um, can be. You look um, in different chapters at um, different types of failure, ranging from preventable to not preventable dysfunction. So I want to talk, um, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about that. Um, One of the things that you emphasize the importance of in chapter three, and then we'll see it again in later chapters, is the notion of unpreventable failure in efficacy. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about that. Can what are... um, I mean, sort of on some basic level, I think we can understand what the distinction between unpreventable and preventable failures means. But why is it so important for you in terms of the work you're doing in the book to talk about and to emphasize the importance of unpreventable failures and efficacy? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And so, um, so certainly one of the things that I do, uh, I try to emphasize a, a number of, of failures that the text is concerned with. Um, one of them, kind of getting a running start into answering your question, um, is failures in competency, right? The, the fact that people simply tend to fall short in performing rituals as they should be. And so what we need to do is to then come up with a kind of more robust training, right, for, for people to perform rituals appropriately. So the text is certainly interested in those kinds of things, right? The fact that people screw up when we do ritual. Um, however, I think intellectually speaking, the more interesting uh, accounts are what I've called um, failures in efficacy. So situations where the ritual is realized to fall, to fall short itself, right? R- situations where if the ritual is performed according to its script, it will not uh, attain the desired aims that the performers wanted to attain. And one of the things um, that I stress is that there, within these dysfunctions in efficacy, there seem to be certain ones that are preventable and certain ones that are unpreventable. And so with the preventable dysfunctions in efficacy, what we have is the fluent ritual agent who is able to open the ritual script and then um, alter things such that the ritual is able to then succeed, right? So these preventable uh, dysfunctions in efficacy are ones where the fluent ritual agent steps in and alters the ritual in such a way that it's able to then achieve its intended aims. Um, With the unpreventable failures in efficacy, uh, what we have here are situations where regardless of how fluent the ritual agent is, the ritual still fails, Right, And so these tend to be spoken of in situations where there is an oppressive government, for instance. And so um, Confucius, uh, in one of the chapters uh, in the Liji called the Liyun chapter, he observes this ritual performed in his home state, and something seems to be wrong with it. He sighs over its performance. And um, one of the things that seems to be going on is this idea that ritual, even if it's performed completely according to the script, can still fall short. And there are a number of reasons for this. It very well may be because of oppressive governments, for instance, or other kinds of social forces. Uh, It may be simply because there are natural disasters that occur and thwart um, these rituals despite the fact that we're performing them completely according to the script. Great. Now, this is a really interesting moment in the book. and we'll get to uh, the Liyun chapter in more detail in a moment. But what you do in chapter four is you take us through um, this, what seems to be this particular, particularly naughty problem. On the one hand, we do want to, or the kind of ideal, if, if we can call it that, and I, I know I'm putting words in your pen right now. I don't know no, no, you, <laughs> you use this word, but if we can imagine a kind of ideal ritual practitioner who is fluent, it creates a sort of issue. How do you know when... Um, it's basically the right time to open a ritual script and modify it. And how do you know when you've actually gotten things wrong? So after taking us through um, different ways that fluent and competent ritual agents deal with um, and open a ritual script to ensure success of the ritual. So accounting for changes in time, changes in geography, you just mentioned that, you know, we don't live by the sea, we don't have a fish, so we'll use something else. Um, Situations where agents couldn't perform the actions demanded by the script. And so if someone's too old or young or too sick to perform the actions, how do you open the script to account for that? Um, Situations that are novel that the script didn't account for. But that presents a particular um, kind of opportunity for a kind of failure you're calling a failure in fluency. And this is a a case in which the ritual agent misidentifies a shortcoming and inappropriately modifies it. And I mention this because you signal this in the text as a particular moment where contrasting and comparing and differentiating failures in fluency and failures in competency is actually important for us to understand for the work that comes later. So did you want to talk a little bit about that moment and that contrast and that particular problem? 
Yeah, um, and so the the text is also quite concerned with the fact that uh, people tend to think that they are more fluent than they actually are, and this may lead to situations where people then usurp the, usurp rituals in certain ways. Um, and so, you know, this is a concern, of course, with a number of kind of the early Confucian texts that uh, people are taking it, um, people are taking the performance of ritual into their own hands, and they're changing. Changing the ritual script in ways that really shouldn't be done. Um, yes, I'm trying to think what else I said there. Um, that's immediately what comes to mind. <laughs> no, 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 that's great. I mean, it's a, basically uh, what I can do is I think this is important um, because it sort of brings us to um, the next part of the book, right? And um, it sort of sets up what you're going to do in the next chapter of chapters of the book, which bring us to different kinds of failures, right? And so this is what you do um, in chapter five is you're bringing us from these, um, this very sophisticated way, I think, of understanding potentially preventable failures to bringing us to the particular issue of unpreventable failures. Okay, so you just um, briefly introduced for us this Li Yun chapter of the Li Ji, which gives an account of the coming of ritual into the world. So it's this really interesting history or sort of capsule history of ritual as told by the figure of Confucius in this text. Um, because this is so important, can you talk a little bit more about this moment in the text and why it's so important and the sort of what Confucius does with this in terms of periodizing ritual? Yeah, so this is uh, a very one of the very fascinating chapters um, within within the Li Ji, um, and it's also one of the few chapters that will really talk about where ritual came from, how it came to be, and so it provides. Uh, somewhat of a complex narrative of the emergence of ritual. And one of the reasons that it's complex is because the textual composition of the Li Yun chapter itself has a number of kind of historical uh, kind of complexities that come into play. And I note those, of course, in a number of places. Um, but taking the chapter as it stands in the Li Yun, um, what we see here is a rough narrative about the emergence of a ritual tradition. And the narrative that's told is something like this, right? And this is set within uh, the backdrop of Confucius witnessing this failed ritual in his home state of Lu. He sighs. His disciple asks, what's wrong? And then he goes into this story. And he essentially says that there was a really early time period in human history where human beings lived in caves and nests and they drank the blood of animals and used their feathers as clothing because they essentially didn't know any better. Uh, during this time, you have the appearance of sages. And sages created things and taught people how to build slightly more sophisticated homes uh, and also better kinds of food, other kinds of implements that would allow human beings to live uh, in a more sophisticated society. And the text, in essence, describes this as the beginning of the ritual tradition. And if you take, again, the text as it stands within the Li Ji, um, what you have is a progression from this kind of beginning era where the sages are now teaching people um, how to live in um, more uh, – in homes actually and these kinds of things. Uh, the text eventually shifts into another era where people are now living in fairly simple homes and exist in fairly uh, simple relationships. And so you have the relationship between the older generation and the younger generation, for instance. And the text says that um, the younger generation treated all of the older generation as their parents and the older generation treated all of the younger generation as their family members or as their children rather. Um, the text describes this era as one in which uh, society essentially lived in con in conjunction with the da dao, right, with the great way, and it describes it as the da tong, kind of this era of grand unity, an era in which people lived as one family, the way that the text explains. Um, what happens though after this is the text doesn't get into um, in, into too many details as to how this transition occurs, but the great way becomes obscure and people then uh, begin um, 
creating more sophisticated cities, for instance. And so they create moats and walls. And uh, what happens is that fortunately there are a number of these kind of profound people that appear on the scene. And they are then able to uh, continue to construct a ritual tradition that orders their society. And what this ritual tradition does is continue to foster distinctions, distinctions between, for instance, one's uh, minister and the ruler, a father and a son, a brother and brother, and these kinds of things uh, that um, create a kind of situation the text calls modest prosperity. Now, um, that's roughly speaking this this narrative that develops. Um, The way that I interpret this narrative is uh, what we see here is a depiction of the emergence of a ritual tradition. And the final emergence of that tradition occurs during this era of modest prosperity. And what you have during this era are people now living in much more sophisticated homes. It describes the implements that people use to cook and perform rituals and how many different kinds of wines there are and these kinds of things. And so you're now living in a more sophisticated society. Um, the, uh, the text um, – again, at least with my interpretation of the text uh, – The difference between this era of modest prosperity and some of the early eras is that you have people during this era of modest prosperity uh, identifying some kind of a tradition in distinction from the other traditions that they're performing or the, the other kinds of traditions that one could potentially perform. And so what you have in the eras of grand unity and this early era is kind of the unreflective performance of ritual. And the upshot, of course, of these earlier eras is that you have a society that essentially performs ritual as scripted by the sages. The downside, of course, is that these early societies can't support a more robust and more sophisticated population and, uh, or, or more sophisticated individuals. And so in this era of modest prosperity, you have the emergence of a number of new distinctions. These distinctions are supported and even created by the ritual tradition. But you also now have an awareness of more relationships. You have an awareness of relationships between those within one's city, let's say, and those of another city. And the text actually says that immediately after the creation of this ritual tradition, weapons come about. Right? And so there seem to be a number of downsides uh, actually associated with living in this more complex society. And the way that I interpret these downsides is that uh, questions of agency become more ambiguous. You now have the performance of ritual that's predicated on a growing number of, of relationships, uh, each of which have to perform the, their part of the ritual in accordance with the script or it's going to fail. And so in the creation of a kind of more complex society that allows for the full realization of the individuals within that society, uh, you also have the possibility or, or the likelihood even that the ritual tradition is not going to succeed. Right? It kind of creates this fragile uh, – it, it, it creates a kind of uh, fragile tradition that enables the possibility for success but also the likelihood of failure. Great. And this is actually um, – I mean we could even think about this problem that this creates even more strongly. I mean you, you, you say here that it actually – this problem or this set of stories by um, the, the Confucius figure constructs a narrative about not only the possibility of ritual failure but the inevitability of ritual failure owing to inevitable changes in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is – this brings us to what in many ways um, – is the conceptual heart of the book, which is a series of chapters afterward um, where you're taking this notion, okay, th- this sort of very fraught notion, what do we do with this? The idea of the inevitability of ritual failure in a ritual text that is prescriptive, right? And developing it in ways that presents two linked but distinct and important arguments about ritual in this text and perhaps ritual more broadly. One is an argument for the self-conscious construction 
discussion of an ambiguity in discussion of ritual failure. And another, which is related, um, is the idea of a tragic theory of ritual as it applies to early Confucianism. So I want to make sure that we get to both of these components, and we'll do so um, by looking at, as our, our touchstone, a story that you raised in chapter seven, where you're really elaborating um, and developing these ideas. And this is the story of the collapse of the grave of Confucius's parents in the Tangguangshang chapter of the Li Ji. Now, it builds on previous discussions where you elaborate the, what you mean by the idea of ambiguity, um, why this is important, and builds this into an argument for what you're calling the tragic theory of ritual. So let's jump in. Can you talk a little bit about, or can you introduce this vignette um, for listeners and talk about um, sort of why this creates um, or helps you think through and elaborate your idea of an ambiguous situation um, in terms of stories of ritual failure? Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, again, it, it appears in one of the earlier chapters of the Liji. And it, it's, it's in one of the chapters um, that reads uh, similar to the Analects in the sense of not having very long narratives, but they tend to be kind of short vignettes. And so the vignette as it appears essentially says something to the effect of Confucius was performing the joint burial of his parents. Um, and there are a number of, of historical problems um, w- w- with all of this, this, as there are with a number of, of different things within the Liji itself. Um, but anyway, the story as it's told is that Confucius is going to perform the joint burial of his parents. Um, the problem, though, is that Confucius uh, can't remember – or I should actually say otherwise um, – Confucius is going to perform the joint burial of his parents. And given that he travels all over the kingdom, um, he decides to build a mound on top of the grave. And this is so that he can recognize the grave when he returns from his travels. And in doing this, he says, "Um, I realize that constructing a mound on top of a grave is not in accordance with antiquity. It's not the way that they did this ritual in antiquity. But because I have to travel and because I have to remember where the grave is, I'm going to build this mountain anyway. So he does that, and then he leaves. Um, he probably leaves, leaving his disciples there to then finish constructing this mound. Um, it rains heavily. Uh, his disciples find him um, several days apparently later, and uh, Confucius says, where were you guys? You were supposed to be here a while ago. And they say, well, the grave that we had built collapsed. And Confucius then, of course, cries, and he finally laments, saying, I've heard that the ancients did not fix their graves. And um, this, to me, uh, kind of embodies a number of, it ties together a number of the themes, um, as you were mentioning, that I developed in the earlier chapters. Uh, because the commentators, of course, will have a field day with passages like these in, in order to make sense of what's going on here. Um, whose fault is it that this has happened? Confucius notes that he's left, he's varied from the ways of antiquity, right? And so is it Confucius's fault because he's strayed from the ritual script? Coincidentally, several passages before this in the Tanggongshang chapter, it also notes that joint burials are not in accordance with antiquity either. Um, so it seems that Confucius is varying from antiquity in performing these rituals. Uh, so perhaps it's Confucius's fault for doing this. Um, on the other hand, uh, what you see, and then this matches up with other um, uh, other texts such as the Joli, um, that these early scripts uh, actually tell the people of the Zhou dynasty that you are supposed to build a mound on top of the grade depending on your social rank. So for Confucius's rank, he was supposed to build a mound so many feet high. He did just that. Right? And so it seems from another perspective that Confucius has essentially followed the script for his time precisely according to the script. Right? Yet the ritual failed anyway. Um, some commentators will also look at this in terms of the way in which uh, Confucius's disciples were involved. And so um, Confucius's disciples, for instance, uh, were perhaps not supposed to have fixed the grave. Right? Or at the very least, they were complicit somehow in the failure. 
And so what we have here are kind of the, the highlighting of a number of, of, um, of the ambiguities at the very least that I mentioned in this earlier chapter. The idea that you can't untangle the agencies that are involved in this more complex ritual affair, right? Is it Confucius's fault? Is, is, is it his disciples' fault for building it inappropriately or perhaps even trying to fix it after it collapsed? Uh, you have the idea that Confucius recognizes that he has to stray from antiquity. And so um, you have this question about what it means to be a fluent agent in terms of varying from the practices of antiquity. Is it Confucius's own fault because he wasn't as fluent as he thought he was? Or is this just a condition of living a life after antiquity? Living a life that compels us to be displaced, right? Living a life that we can't actually remain in one rooted location anymore. Living a life that we have to travel around the kingdom trying to persuade people to do things. They didn't have to do this in antiquity. We just live in a more complex time in which these agencies end up being complicated. They end up being folded together and and, uh, we're unable to um, kind of untangle them in order to make sense of the situation. Anyway, that's the, the rough idea of that chapter. Now, you argue in this series of chapters that ambiguity was not necessarily, um, I mean, you're not arguing that this was definitely the case, but you're saying it's not necessarily true that we ought to and understand this ambiguity as accidental. And in fact, you're arguing that it's possible that ambiguity was a deliberate rhetorical device employed by the authors of the Liji. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you sometimes uh, see um, a, a number of figures kind of playing on the ambiguity uh, between these kind of preventable and unpreventable failures. And so uh, the idea that a ritual failure may be ambiguous, whether or not it was a preventable or an unpreventable failure, whose particular fault it was, um, allowed uh, a number of these early figures to kind of play on that ambiguity and avoid situations where they, in essence, could be blamed for the failure um, or, uh, at the very least, um, open the possibility for kind of criticizing those in authority of improperly performing rituals. And so this ambiguity kind of opened the door for uh, kind of a, a rhetorical area where people could um, posture, position, and debate about who essentially was at fault for these failures. And um, find ways of, of, of uh, either of moving themselves within their society or at least uh, positioning themselves in such a way that they're not going to be held accountable for the failure of the ritual tradition. Great. Now, you're using this idea of of ambiguity and asking us to kind of really think about and embrace this idea of ambiguity in order to, or if Perhaps the causality is not um, something that I can impute um, here, but you're in addition to doing this, you're moving us to um, what you're calling a tragic theory of ritual as a way to understand um, the way ritual failure is dealt with in this text, perhaps as emblematic of early Confucianism. Can you explain that for us, this idea of a tragic theory of ritual as it applies here? Yeah, and, and so um, the way that I mean uh, a kind of – the way that I use the idea of the tragic um, is in the sense of uh, – is in the sense of, well, first of all, some kind of a tragic conflict where you're – compelled to choose between two goods, right? And so in, in this case, the development of the ritual tradition um, compels people to choose between a kind of uh, simple world in which ritual seemed to work and one where ritual is highly likely or even inevitably will fail, right? And yet choosing the latter, of course, opens the idea or opens a possibility for kind of the full realization of, of society. Um, so there's kind of a tragic shift in terms of leaving behind the ways of antiquity. Uh, there's also this idea of the tragic that comes into play in terms of um, the kind of interconnectedness of this complex society, that our agencies become uh, entangled in such a way that we uh, lose strong bearing of, of – or we lose kind of a, a bearing on the way in which we're able to attribute kind of blame and praise for the success or failure of ritual performances. Um, the – other way that I meant tragic eludes my mind for the time being. Um, 
<laughs> no, that's that's actually really helpful, and and I think you um you elaborate um, this idea of the tragic also in the next chapter. So perhaps this will this will uh, uh, jog your memory. Um, but I think one of the things that this does is, and before we wrap up, um, I'd just like to to ask you to talk a little bit about this because it is also very important. Is it brings us to the idea of anxiety. Right, the sort of the mm-hmm. worries and the anxiety that is built up with or bound up with the reality of the ambiguity of ritual and the sense of the tragic that accompanies that. So in chapter eight, in the last chapter before the conclusion, you look at worries and anxieties among early confusions about ritual. So the worry that ritual success is contingent on things beyond the power of the agent and also the anxiety associated with the perceived need to vary from successful rituals of the past. And we've sort of talked about this ambiguity and this tension and these anxieties, perhaps in other terms, when we talked about um, this uh, particularly fraught position of the fluent ritual practitioner and sort of the problem of, well, how do you know that a ritual script should be opened? And how do you know that you're not just screwing things up, right? Because that's a potential failure. Right. So, um, so in this chapter, you talk about the notions of anxieties. Um, uh, you talk about the notion of a failed ritual being sort of awful in the sense perhaps of a kind of sublime. One of the things, though, that is really notable here, and this is what I want to ask you to talk a little bit about, is you're positing um, that there are, this is actually a kind of creative and therapeutic set of possibilities that emerges from um, this set of anxieties. So we're, we're going into a positive, kind of optimistic place at the end of this. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that, the therapeutics and the creative possibilities of anxieties? Yeah. Um, and so uh, so I, I highlight, of course, a number of anxieties kind of in this final chapter. Um, the Perhaps, uh, I suppose, one of the most relevant um, anxieties for your question is this anxiety of vulnerability, right? The idea that the ritual tradition or the world that ritual creates is susceptible to a number of things, right? It's susceptible to human agency, of course, especially in the form of governmental institutions. It's still susceptible to other kinds of natural disasters, um, and it's also susceptible to things like death. And so one of the things that I discussed, for instance, is... Uh, the ways in which um, a number of the burial rites um, play on this idea of vulnerability. And so um, to talk about that uh, specifically for, for a moment, um, the, way that the, vul- the way that the burial rites work is that one of the first things that occurs after someone dies is that a mourner climbs up to the corner of their roof and calls back their spirit. Right to, for the spirit to come back to the body, um, then eventually what happens is that uh, a funeral procession is carried out. Um, of course, there are a number of things that happen in between all of these things, um, but a funeral procession is carried out, and the way that one of the chapters describes the funeral procession is that mourners are supposed to follow after the carriage carrying the body as if they are trying to catch up to the deceased like the deceased was still alive as if they were almost on a walk with a deceased but the deceased was kind of up ahead of them and so they're trying to catch up to them and find them and um, what ends up happening of course is that they don't find them and they return to the home of the deceased and they look for the deceased in the various rooms of the home unable to find him or her they then confront their sorrow and the text explains it's at this point that they totally exhaust their sorrow their hearts are despondent and morose and perplexed to the point that there's nothing but sorrow at all. And um, one of the things uh, that I take from kind of this description of the uh, the the, uh, the burial rites um, is that well, first of all, it's predicated on the failure of them to actually find what they're looking for, right? It's predicated on the failure of them to find the deceased still living. Um, at the same time, what you have is uh, kind of the performance of ambivalence in the situation where you have, um, on the one hand, the sincere hope that you will find that person, right? that you will find that person in their home or you'll be able to call their spirit back. On the other hand, the realization that that doesn't happen, right? or at the very least, it rarely happens. Um, 
in the view of the text. And so what you have is the performance of ritual as a way of confronting our vulnerability within the world, right? And so what you have um, is rather than these rituals being advocated as ways of being efficacious ways of bringing people back to life, which they're not advocated as, instead they're advocated as a kind of therapy, right? They're advocated as a kind of way of us uh, performing an embodied confession of the way that we wish the world was. Right? We wish the world was such a place that when we call upon the spirits of the deceased, uh, that they will actually come back. Um, the yeah, and so um, part of this part of this idea of these anxieties of ritual is that this anxiety of vulnerability, the very fact that our ritual traditions may not work, or the world that ritual creates is still susceptible to dysfunction, um, is. Uh, it, a, a way that allows us to kind of perform this therapeutic act of confronting our honesty about the way that the world is. Uh, it also kind of enables um, a care for other people, right? And so there seems to be this idea that um, because we are vulnerable in a certain sense, because we're vulnerable to things such as death uh, and harm from institutions and whatnot, um, that the this vulnerability is going to mobilize us to to get together to form societies that are going to perform the proper ritual tradition to care for each other in ways that we're going to cultivate relationships now um whereas if we weren't vulnerable beings there wouldn't be motivations to do that now rather than over a longer period of time of course <laughs> Well, Michael, thank you so much um, for being with us today. There's obviously a ton of material that we didn't get to in the book. In fact, there's an entire chapter um, toward a tragic theory of ritual that situates the theory of ritual you're developing here within a larger field of ritual studies. So I'll just signal that for listeners. It's a very rich chapter. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd especially like to mention for listeners, and especially listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Um, nothing immediately comes to mind. I, I think we've hit on all the, the major points. Um, I haven't – obviously, this explains much better in the book than I was able to articulate here. Um, but such is life, I suppose, right? No, I think this is great. Um, it, it's, um, and also, I think talking about um, the book as sort of human beings and a human voice, uh, even if um, it's articulated in a different way, um, then obviously then we can or should articulate it in a book. I think this actually helps bring out some threads um, in, a, in a way that will hopefully um, add to the experience or change productively the experience um, of a, a listener going to an academic book and reading it. So, no, this has been great. Um, so, and I'll also just signal for listeners, um, there is a lot in here. There are a lot of examples. There are a lot of texts that you discuss. Um, there's a lot in here um, for the reader that we didn't actually have a chance to cover, but that elaborates on and gives examples of and fleshes out a lot of what we've talked about today. So um, now that this wonderful book is out, and congratulations um, on on the book, and it's oh, going you. to make um, contributions to a number of different fields, as I as, as I imagine you intended. What's next for you? What project is inspiring you at the moment? Uh, well, I mean, actually, I've. Kind of picked up where I've left off in some regards, and so the the project that I'm giving some thought to, at least, and have started to to write about, uh, is the question of vulnerability in in early Confucianism. Um, and so my hope is to kind of expand my reach into a number of, of other texts from roughly the uh, preaching and, and Han period uh, to look at the question of from the view of the authors or redactors, what kinds of meaningful things in life lay beyond the power of human beings to control. Um, and so that's kind of where my thought has gone. And one of the chapters that I'm currently working on is the question of integrity, um, whether or not there are kind of tragic situations or tragic conflicts uh, that, um, that moral agents cannot but emerge tainted from 
tainted beyond grief, perhaps to the point of regret. Anyway, that's where my thought is at the moment. That's great. And that really seems to develop this idea of a tragic theory of ritual um, and the kind of the notions here are there in the book that you raise of negotiating ritual practice as a kind of risk management almost. Um, that's really cool. Well, best of luck on the next project. And we'll look forward to talking with you again when that's out, uh, whenever that is. And thank you again for taking the time um, to talk with me today. Oh, thank you, Carl. It's been wonderful. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for making the time to listen to us today, and we will look forward to seeing you again next time.